Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of stalking, severe mental illness, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Prosecutor Marcia Clark took a few deep breaths before entering the conference room. Normally, she knew exactly what to say before meeting potential clients, but this time, she was at a loss. She couldn't imagine the pain of losing a child. There was no way to comfort someone after an ordeal like that. So what was she going to say to Benson and Dana Schaefer, who had just finished burying their daughter? She walked into the meeting with no idea. When she met the Schaefers, their grief was immediately apparent. But to Clark's surprise, there wasn't just sadness in their eyes. There was something else too, anger. For days, they'd been searching for their daughter's killer. Now, they knew exactly who he was. Suddenly, Marcia knew what to say. The Schaefers didn't want her apologies. They weren't waiting for her thoughts and prayers. They wanted justice. What happened to their daughter wasn't an accident. There was a single man to blame. Clark promised the Schaefer she would make sure the killer never hurt anyone ever again. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed Robert John Bardo and his obsession with Hollywood actress Rebecca Schaefer. After years of stalking Schaefer, Bardo tracked down her address and confronted her in West Hollywood in July of 1989. This week, We'll discuss their final encounter, the trial that followed, and the lasting impact Bardo's crimes had on stalking laws throughout the U.S. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On the morning of July 18, 1989, Robert John Bardo rang the doorbell outside of Rebecca Schaefer's apartment. The 19-year-old had traveled by bus from his home in Tucson, Arizona, in order to confront Schaefer and win her heart. He believed she was a victim of the immoral Hollywood film industry and envisioned himself rescuing her from a life of sin. Though he'd been obsessed with the 21-year-old actress for years, she barely knew who Bardo was. The first time he showed up to her apartment that day, Bardo rambled incoherently for a few minutes before she shut the door on him. While Schaefer hated to turn fans away, it was clearly across the line for someone to show up to her home unannounced. 
Besides, she was busy preparing for a meeting with Francis Ford Coppola about auditioning for The Godfather 3. Schaefer was eagerly awaiting a courier who was supposed to be delivering the script that morning. That's likely why she was so quick to answer the door when Bardo rang a second time. She rushed out of the shower and down the steps of her apartment building when she heard the bell. She was frustrated to see Bardo once again waiting in her doorway. He was clearly agitated too. After being rebuffed once by Schaefer already, he felt more alone than ever before. To him, this was his last chance to be with the woman he believed to be his soulmate. Before she could turn him away a second time, Bardo launched into an endless tirade about how big of a fan he was and how they were meant to be together. Eventually, Schaefer interrupted him. According to Bardo, she may have even told him, you're wasting my time. The words stung. For Schaefer, they were a natural and justified reaction to a stalker harassing her. To Bardo, they were his worst fears realized. Growing up, he'd been abused or mistreated by everyone he'd ever tried to get close to, his parents, his siblings, and every institution he'd been a part of. Now, the fantasy world he'd concocted was shattered. Schaefer wasn't just rejecting his obsessive love, it was like she was rejecting his entire being. Before I continue with Bardo's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Dr. Christine K. Keenlin writes in her paper, Developmental and Social Antecedents of Stalking, the relationship model that an individual constructs and internalizes as a child plays a role in the creation and maintenance of relationships throughout the lifespan. Abandonment or rejection threatens the sense of self. Schaefer wasn't just Bardo's favorite celebrity. He saw her as his destined partner in love. Because he had bipolar disorder and may have been in the midst of a manic episode at the time, his emotions were even more intense. He likely wasn't thinking straight. It is possible then that Bardo understood Schaefer's rejection, not only in the context of their relationship, but within his own identity as well. She wasn't just denying him her affection, she was denying him the comforting delusion he'd created for himself. As Schaefer went to go back inside her apartment, Bardo caught the door with his hand and held it open. He begged her to wait, telling her he had one more thing to give her. Schaefer reluctantly turned back toward him and watched as he pulled something from his bag. In a flash, Bardo drew a pistol and shot Rebecca Schaefer in the chest at point-blank range. Schaefer fell to the ground, screaming and crying. She looked at Bardo, shocked and betrayed. Her neighbor, Lynn Marta, remembered hearing Schaefer's cries for help as she lay on the floor. Bardo fled the scene while paramedics were called. Despite their best efforts, by the time the ambulance reached the hospital, Rebecca Schaefer had passed away.
most of her friends would learn about her death on TV. It immediately became the biggest story in Los Angeles. At first, police had no suspects in mind. Schaefer had no known enemies and hadn't received any threats before the shooting. But after interviewing nearby residents, authorities got a solid description of Bardo. Only hours before the murder, he had roamed the streets, aggressively approaching passersby and showing them Schaefer's picture, asking them where she lived. Detectives knew who they were looking for, but Bardo had a head start. After the shooting, he went straight back to the bus station and boarded the next Greyhound to Tucson. By the late afternoon, he was once again sitting on his living room couch in front of the TV. Bardo held his head in his hands. He could hardly process what he'd done, even after hours on the bus. He turned on the news and saw Rebecca Schaefer's face flash on screen. A wave of grief suddenly washed over him, replaced immediately by a curious numbness. He felt somehow outside himself, caught halfway between reality and delusion. In that state, he was almost surprised to hear that Schaefer was dead. Was he really responsible? He had done something irreversible and irredeemable, something he couldn't fully understand or accept. Because of Bardo's bipolar disorder, it's possible he was still caught in a manic episode following the shooting. He started to mentally come apart at the seams at night. He didn't sleep a wink, instead taking to the streets, screaming and crying on a long walk to nowhere. The next day, the Tucson Sheriff's Department responded to a call about a crazed man blocking traffic on a downtown freeway. When they arrived at the scene, they found Robert John Bardo, dirty and sleepless, crying in the middle of the street. He yelled over and over again, I killed Rebecca Schaefer. The police loaded Bardo into a patrol car and took him to the station. During the entire ride back, he continued to scream incessantly. After cross-checking his description with detectives in California, authorities started to take his confession more seriously. He was soon extradited to Los Angeles. When he was placed in the custody of the LAPD, it was like a switch flipped in Bardo's mind. He went from incoherently crying and moaning to euphorically reveling in his crime, another possible consequence of his bipolar condition. His mood swings continued throughout his interrogations. At some points, he was giddy with excitement while talking about the murder. At others, he seemed to be heartbroken. Through it all, his confessions had an incredulous air to them, as if Bardo was asking himself over and over, did I really do that? In bone-chilling videos recorded two months before his trial, Bardo described the shooting as if it was the most fun he'd ever had. He punctuated his story with cartoonish onomatopoeia and over-the-top hand motions. During one interrogation, he paced back and forth as he recounted the murder. At one point, he even whipped his hand out from behind his back, imitating the gun with his fingers. He grinned as he mimed pulling the trigger while adding sound effects for the gunshot. 
Dr. Chris Mahandi, a forensic psychologist, was struck by Bardo's behavior while he was being questioned. He said, his demeanor during those interviews was matter of fact. He shows no signs of remorse and there's not any sense that he saw anything wrong with what he had done. While police built a case against Bardo, Rebecca Schaefer's parents flew to California to make arrangements for her funeral. They were heartbroken over the loss, but they were also incredibly angry. A man had snatched their daughter's life away in cold blood for absolutely no reason. They were adamant that the culprit be punished to the full extent of the law. To do that, they hired a young attorney named Marcia Clark. Today, Clark is best known for her work as a prosecutor during the infamous trial of O.J. Simpson. Long before that, though, she worked with Dana and Benson Schaefer to bring Robert Bardo to justice. The pending trial, however, was set to be anything but normal. Rebecca Schaefer's murder had become national news, and the notoriety of the case had put all eyes on Bardo's Dayton court. In fact, the Schaefer case was so well known that it proved to be close to impossible to find an impartial jury. The lawyers representing Robert John Bardo's defense motioned to do away with the jurors altogether and have the case be ruled by judgment. This meant that only the judge would be able to decide the verdict. Marcia Clark agreed to the defense's terms. After all, there was no mystery to the case. The trial wouldn't be about who shot Rebecca Schaefer. Rather, it would be about why Robert John Bardo had done it. In order to discover that motive, the proceedings would have to dive deep into the psyche of a killer. Onlookers would be forced to ask themselves, could a sane man really have killed Rebecca Schaefer? Coming up, we'll cover the trial of Robert John Bardo. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. After killing Rebecca Schaefer at her front door on July 18, 1989, Robert John Bardo was taken into Los Angeles police custody. The 19-year-old not only confessed to the murder, but by and large showed little remorse for the heinous act. As his trial date approached, his defense struggled to get a read on how Bardo felt about his own actions. Occasionally, he appeared to be stricken with guilt, 
but most of the time, he seemed completely unfazed by the events going on around him. The high-profile proceedings began on September 25, 1991. A giant crowd of reporters made it difficult for the lawyers to make their way up the steps of the courthouse. Inside, eager murmuring filled the room. Prosecutor Marcia Clark blocked it all out as she made her opening arguments. Her stance was clear. Robert John Bardo had murdered Rebecca Schaefer in cold blood. He should serve life in prison without parole for his crime. She went on to speculate that Bardo had been jealous of Schaefer's fame and wanted her all to himself. Bardo's defense attorney, Stephen E. Galindo, didn't refute the events of the murder itself. Instead, he looked for a not guilty verdict by reason of insanity. He argued that Bardo should be found not guilty of first-degree murder because he didn't have the mental capacity to understand what he was doing. Forensic psychologist Dr. Chris Mahandi spoke about the insanity plea in a 2020 ABC special. He said, I've researched hundreds of celebrity stalking cases and consulted to many as well. And we found that the person who stalks someone they've never met before typically has major mental illness, meaning some sort of psychotic condition, a thought disorder. But on top of that, they often have a personality disorder like narcissism. Up until that point, Bardo had been clinically diagnosed as bipolar, which is a mood condition and not a personality disorder. It is possible that he may have suffered from additional issues, however. The defense bet Bardo's life that he had been misdiagnosed. If his mental illness was the result of a severe personality disorder, it would be easier to argue that he was not fully in control of his actions during the murder. According to the law, if Bardo was found to be not guilty by reason of insanity, it would also mean that the crime was committed on the spur of the moment. To prove he was guilty, Marcia Clark had to convince the judge that Bardo knew murdering Schaefer was wrong and had premeditated it. One of the first witnesses called in the trial was a security guard who had met Bardo the first time the killer tried to make contact with Schaefer. About a year prior to the murder, Bardo tried to visit Schaefer on the set of her sitcom. The guard testified that Bardo showed up with a giant teddy bear he wanted to give to Schaefer. When he was denied access, he became dejected. He was so defeated that the guard even offered to drive him back to the motel he was staying at. The next day, however, things changed. Bardo returned to the set, but this time he didn't seem so pathetic. Instead, he was furious and dangerous. When he was asked to leave, Bardo even pulled a knife out on the security guard. Overall, the guard said Bardo struck him as a supremely sad individual. Next, the prosecution moved on to Bardo's family. The first to testify was his sister, who admitted that he'd called her before the murder to warn her she might hear bad things about him on the news. This became a major piece of testimony for Marcia Clark. She made the case that this call proved that Bardo knew he was about to commit a crime. Bardo's older brother seemed to agree. He'd purchased the gun that was used to kill Schaefer. Though he'd made Bardo promise not to use it without supervision, in retrospect, it was obvious what his brother planned to do with the weapon. 
Finally, Bardo's father, Philip, took the stand. Philip's testimony was especially difficult to listen to. He was incredibly callous toward his son, describing Bardo as a degenerate nuisance to the family. He stated that when he heard the report that Rebecca Schaefer had been shot, the first thing he did was to ask where Bardo had gone. When they discovered he was missing, Philip knew what had happened. While the testimony furthered Clark's argument that Bardo had premeditated the murder, it also helped the defense. The entire Bardo family came across as cold and unsympathetic. They even testified that they knew Bardo had mental issues that stopped him from participating in society as a normal, everyday citizen. What was even more unsettling was the way Bardo reacted from the defendancy to his relatives' harsh words. The entire time they mercilessly insulted him, Bardo barely moved a muscle. For most of the proceedings, he seemed almost catatonic. He didn't react to anything anyone said about him. He didn't lash out at his father and refused to even speak to his lawyers. After a few more testimonies, the prosecution rested. The defense got a chance to call their own witness, headlined by famed criminal psychologist, Dr. Park Dietz. Dr. Dietz was fairly accustomed to being on the stand by that point in his career. He had built a life out of testifying on behalf of the most deranged killers in American history. Among others, he spoke about the mental state of the Unabomber and Jeffrey Dahmer. He even gave his medical opinion about the man who shot Ronald Reagan. Dr. Dietz was more than just a psychologist. He was a key component to the defense's case. Marcia Clark clicked the top of her pen nervously as Dr. Dietz was called. She prepared a piece of paper to start taking notes. No matter what he said during his testimony, she knew she had the opportunity to strike back during cross-examination. She had her work cut out for her though. Dr. Dietz had interviewed Robert John Bardo two months before his trial. In these interviews, Bardo had given his infamous rendition of the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, complete with gun noises, wide smiles, and flailing arms. At one point, he even got on the ground and played the part of his victim when acting out her death. He imitated her screaming before sitting back down and continuing with his interview. Tapes of these interrogations were played for the courtroom. Just like before, Bardo watched them with an impassive expression. He said nothing as Dr. Dietz testified that Bardo suffered from significant mental illness, likely from a young age. Bardo had mentioned in his interviews that he often felt no different from the cat in his childhood home. He viewed himself as lacking a will of his own, not noticed or respected by the people around him. In a way, he believed he was nothing more than a living piece of furniture. After this unsettling testimony sunk in, Dr. Dietz moved on. In addition to Bardo, he characterized the killer's siblings and mother as severely mentally ill. He claimed that being raised in such a manner had made Bardo's existing problems even worse. The largest revelation, however, came when Dr. Dietz spoke about the stimuli that may have caused Bardo to kill. In his interview with Dr. Dietz, Bardo mentioned that he believed the radio spoke directly to him. 
He claimed that he felt influenced by songs, as though they ordered him to do things. Then, in the middle of Dr. Dietz's testimony, defense attorney Stephen Galindo played a popular song on the stereo, Exit, by mega rock band U2. The results were astonishing, and for many in the courtroom, deeply disturbing. When the music started playing, the previously catatonic Bardo suddenly came alive. He started to rock back and forth in his chair, grinning ear to ear. He mouthed some of the words as though he was at a U2 concert all by himself. When the music stopped, so did Bardo's quiet performance. A hush fell over the courtroom as he regained his disaffected, almost bored expression. Eventually, Dr. Dietz told the court he believed that Bardo had schizophrenia. He testified that the killer's manic bipolar episode could have worsened his schizophrenia and driven him to murder Rebecca Schaefer. According to the Mayo Clinic, the combination of both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder is better known as schizoaffective disorder. It can be very difficult to manage if left untreated. The Mayo Clinic states, although the development and course of schizoaffective disorder may vary, defining features include a major mood disorder and at least a two-week period of psychotic symptoms when a major mood episode is not present. Dr. Dietz's testimony was impactful. Questions remained, however, about what exactly it meant for Bardo legally. If he had been in a state of psychosis, did that mean he shouldn't be found guilty? These were exactly the answers Marcia Clark was determined to find during her cross-examination. She wound up discovering an alarming set of holes in Dr. Dietz's diagnosis. She was able to discredit a good portion of his testimony by questioning the extent of Bardo's mental illness. She conceded that he suffered from many issues, but she argued they were not as severe as the defense wanted the court to believe. Through succinct questions, Clark got Dr. Dietz to testify that even if Bardo was schizophrenic, he still could have potentially premeditated the murder. She was also able to cast doubt on his interviewing techniques. Clark made it seem as though Bardo was manipulating the doctor and that Dietz blindly believed everything he was being told. In order to really drive her point home, however, Marcia Clark had to prove that Bardo planned to murder Rebecca Schaefer. Just like the defense had a trick up their sleeve with the U2 song, she had a secret weapon as well. Clark asked the court to replay the video of Bardo confessing to his crime. Onlookers watched Bardo go through the motions they had already seen, reaching behind his back. Right as Bardo went to pull out his fake finger gun, Clark suddenly paused the video. She argued that Bardo's account proved he had been actively concealing the weapon behind his back before shooting Rebecca Schaefer. She felt this indicated that Bardo knew what he was doing was wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't have hidden the gun. In her opinion, it was a key piece of the puzzle that was Bardo's complicated psyche. She claimed that the killer had consciously tried to surprise Schaefer with the pistol as part of a carefully premeditated plan. He hadn't acted out of sudden impulse, but rather to fulfill a clear set of goals. After her brutal cross-examination, 
Dr. Dietz left the stand. Both the defense and prosecution had given their best cases. All that was left were the closing arguments. Up next, the sentencing and aftermath of Bardo's day in court. Now, back to the story. On December 20th, 1991, 21-year-old Robert John Bardo had his final day in court after murdering Hollywood actress Rebecca Schaefer. There was no doubt that Bardo had committed the crime, yet his defense attorney argued that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. The defense admitted that, as everyone could plainly see, Rebecca Schaefer was a victim who deserved justice. What was more difficult to parse, however, was that perhaps Robert John Bardo had been a victim as well, possibly suffering from a dangerous combination of mental illnesses he hadn't received the care he desperately needed. If he was going to be found guilty, Prosecutor Marcia Clark had to prove that Bardo knew exactly what he was doing when he killed Schaefer. During closing arguments, each side stuck to the path they had laid during the trial. The defense reiterated their argument that Bardo was in a state of schizophrenia-induced psychosis. They claimed he didn't have the mental capacity to consciously plan the murder of Rebecca Schaefer. The prosecution started their closing arguments, first by casting doubt on Dr. Dietz. Clark claimed he didn't do his due diligence and that he recklessly believed everything a murderer had told him. Then she made her way to Bardo. She reframed his claim that he wanted to save Rebecca Schaefer as deeply malicious. Clark painted him as someone who was resentful of the actress's fame. She believed Bardo murdered Schaefer in an effort to claim her notoriety as his own. Clark agreed that there was no doubt Bardo was mentally ill, but she still felt he was culpable for the shooting. When push came to shove, the case came down to what Superior Court Judge Dino Fulgoni believed about Bardo's condition. He held a man's fate in his hands and it wasn't a decision he took lightly. The complicated conversations about degrees of mental illness have been studied by Dr. Chris Mahandi extensively. Referring to the Bardo case, he stated, despite having mental illness, he's quite capable of knowing what he's doing and knowing it was wrong and having what I refer to as a criminal presence of mind. Judge Fulgoni reached a similar conclusion. In December of 1991, after a month-long trial, Robert John Bardo was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As Bardo left the building in handcuffs, several of Schaefer's friends and family celebrated. Her boyfriend, Bradley Silberling, called Bardo a coward. Schaefer's mother, Dana, whispered to him, you will have to live with this guilt the rest of your life. With those words ringing in his ears, Bardo was sent to a maximum security prison in California. It's hard to know what he felt as he was marched back to his prison cell. Perhaps he remained in a state of dissociation, still unable to process what he'd done. But eventually, he would have to come face to face with the consequences of his actions. 
By that time, however, his story was over. He was left unable to harm anyone else ever again. For Schaefer's family though, the story of life without her was just beginning. There were still things left to fight for to make sure victims of stalking didn't face the same dangers Rebecca Schaefer had. Their first plan of action came in 1990, when the Los Angeles Police Department created a new task force to deal with stalking incidents, the Threat Management Unit. The group specifically worked with notable people who had been threatened with or were currently experiencing some form of stalking. It continues to be in operation today. The new police unit was helpful, but wasn't enough to keep potential victims safe. Los Angeles and the country as a whole needed new laws that criminalized stalking and made it harder for predators to corner their victims. The threat management unit served as more of a band-aid than a long-term solution. At first glance, the path to getting these new laws in place seemed long and difficult. The Schaefers were determined to make that process shorter though, even if it meant using the high-profile nature of their daughter's murder to their advantage. Schaefer's death was adapted and featured in the TV series Law & Order. The episode, titled Starstruck, came out in 1992 and was about a soap opera star who was murdered by a crazed fan. Thanks to the publicity provided by moves such as these, New legislation was eventually put in place as a direct result of Schaefer's murder. The laws represented the first act of stalking laws in the entire country. More targeted bills were passed as well. Among the many mistakes that led to Rebecca Schaefer's death, one egregious error stood out in public. Before the shooting, Bardo had hired a private detective to find his target's address. It was an incredibly easy task. All the PI had to do was visit the DMV and pay a small fee to learn the driver's license information of anyone registered in Los Angeles. In 1994, the next piece of anti-stalking legislation was passed called the Driver's Privacy Protection Act. This made it illegal for the DMV to give out any information on registered drivers without their permission. Still, there was work to be done. The Schaefers have pointed out that stalking was only half of the issue that led to their daughter's murder. They have spent the years since the incident arguing for stronger gun laws across the country. They believed it was too easy for Bardo to get the weapon he used to kill their daughter. With stronger prerequisite gun screening laws, America could ensure deadly weapons stay out of the hands of the mentally ill. Schaefer's former My Sister Sam co-star, Pan Dauber, championed the cause as well. In a special commercial appearance, the cast of the sitcom filmed a PSA on their co-star's tragic end. In the short television spot, they advocated for tighter gun laws and more awareness for victims of stalking. Despite the political and legal battles of those years, the hardest part of life for the Schaefer's was not being able to share it with their only daughter. Dana, Rebecca Schaefer's mother, was silent about her grief for a very long time, but in 2017, she decided to speak out. Dana had always been a writer, but it was her daughter who inspired her to take to the stage. 
To express her grief, she wrote and performed a one-person show about the loss of her daughter, titled You in Midair. The show walked audiences through what it was like for Dana to go through the shock and agony that followed the shooting. It marked the last time she publicly discussed the lifelong process of reckoning with her grief. Hundreds of miles away, Bardo has had to reckon with a different kind of fate. Today, he continues to serve out his life sentence at the Avenal State Prison in California. There, he has worked with psychologists, therapists, and medical doctors to better understand his mental state and why he did what he did. In an interview with ABC in 2000, Bardo had this to say about his murder of Rebecca Schaefer. I accept full responsibility for what I've done. My thinking was so negative and I was blaming others for things that were happening within me. But regarding Rebecca Schaefer, she was irreplaceable. I think about her every day. Robert John Bardo's gruesome crime sent a shockwave through the Hollywood community with reverberations that can still be felt today. Rebecca Schaefer's death was a tragedy at every level. A series of institutional mistakes allowed an angry man struggling with mental illness to cut her life and career short. Hopefully, the steps taken by her loved ones following her death can help those who come after her stay safe. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Frank Spiro, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.